Now, today we come to chapter 14, which is the beginning of the passion narrative in Mark's uh, gospel. By passion narrative, it's simply the events associated with the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Mark has gone at breakneck pace to this point. We've uh, understood and seen his logic. Uh, It begins with uh, focusing on uh, the Lord Jesus. That's what Christianity is about, him, his message of forgiveness. It's a provocative message. There are reactions uh, to that message that are strong. And uh, there's lots of evidence Mark gives us through the second uh, part of uh, the first half of Mark, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then the crunch point in the middle, chapter 8, do you understand who I am? And then we've seen how Mark uh, speaks about what it means to follow Jesus. And then last week, as uh, uh, the authority of Jesus as our king. That's his logic. And he's gone at breakneck pace, and so have we. We've uh, run through the chapters. But now in chapter 14, he slows right down to walking pace. And we're going to slow down uh, with him. One of the striking things we're going to see as we study the detailed factual record of the last few days of Jesus' life is that the way that Mark describes his death and resurrection explains the gospel. So, for example, we'll see uh, Jesus' trial before Pilate. On one side of Pilate is Barabbas. On the other side is Jesus. Barabbas, guilty and sinful, goes free. Jesus, guiltless and sinless, goes to the cross. The price of Barabbas' freedom the death of Jesus. Now that teaches us about redemption, buying our forgiveness, the cost, and substitution, Jesus in our place. So as we study the facts, we learn the gospel. And you'll see that as we run through these chapters. Now today, chapter 14, verse 1 through 26. So let's read God's word together. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the letter, As he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's a year's wages, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? For I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, please help us understand how Jesus rescues us through his death on the cross. And help us respond as this woman does, in loving devotion and sacrificial service. And we ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to say that uh, you may have observed Ben, that's Ben on my left, wandering around taking photographs. Don't be alarmed. Uh, he is uh, doing that for our website, which is about to be relaunched in a fresher format. So don't be alarmed. He is official. Now, you'll see on the service sheet two points. One, verses 1 to 11, devotion to the Lord Jesus. Now, this uh, little section at the beginning of Mark's account of the Passion, Mark's account of the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's a little bit like a preface or a preparation 
for all that then follows. And what Mark describes here is really moving. He gives us another mortal disciple. And in so doing, he draws us into the narrative. And I think Mark puts this at the head of his description of the Passion, just to prevent us from studying it in an analytical way. The cross is meant to be experienced in a personal way. Because what Jesus did in going to the cross was for her and for you and for me. And in truth, you cannot be a Christian until you grasp the personal dimension of this. And I encourage you over the next few weeks, Sunday by Sunday, as we study the Passion in the lead-up to Easter, to reread these introductory verses, this preface, this preparation. Now, notice with me the structure of them. Classic Mark, we've seen uh, two bookends with a bit in the middle. Look at the bookends, verse 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. Just read with me uh, verses 1 and 2. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's just a time marker. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And, and what these verses describe is intrigue, betrayal, hostility, rejection of him, Jesus. And uh, look at the other bookend, verses 10 and 11. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. That's a horrible phrase, isn't it? They promised to give him money. It's what swung him. And he saw an opportunity to betray him. So the bookends of Mark's little preface are betrayal and intrigue and deception and hostility. But inside, in the middle verses, it's very different. In Jerusalem, all around Jesus, betrayal, rejection, plotting, and antagonism. But inside this house, there is a very different atmosphere, a very different attitude and actions towards the Lord Jesus. Now, in truth, there is little difference today, I guess. By and large, the world, people's attitude is rejection of Jesus, indifference, and often antagonism to Jesus and his followers. We had a great day yesterday in the Gospel Partnership Conference. There is genuine gospel heart and partnership and vision in this city. There really is. But there are more than 500,000 people this morning in this city who are indifferent, at best, or hostile to the Lord Jesus, to his gospel, to his followers, and who have rejected him. 
the prevailing mood in the city then and the prevailing mood in the city still is hardly devotion to the Lord Jesus. But in this room, and I mean here in this room that you are sitting in, as God's people gather around his word and as God's people gather around the table of the king, things are very different and should be. It should be like being in the house where that woman was with that atmosphere all around. Now, we know whose house it is, but we don't know her name. And uh, the reason for that is that Mark's model disciples are typically not recorded for who they were in the world, but who they were in their hearts. So the model disciple in this room, whoever you are, almost certainly would not be the model disciple from a worldly perspective. It's about our hearts. Notice what she did, verse 3. As Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. He's reclining, he's eating with the disciples, and she comes. She may have been a member of the household. Almost certainly she was, maybe a relative of the owner, Simon, and she brings what is probably a kind of family heirloom, this jar of nard. Nard contained expensive spices. It's worth a year's wages. She smashed it in her hands. They made of pottery, I guess. And she poured it over his head, his hair. And her actions reveal her attitude of loving devotion and sacrificial service towards her Lord Jesus. Let me just just emphasize that. Her actions not towards Jesus the Lord. Her actions towards her Lord Jesus. It's personal to him. Now, this echoes all sorts of things we've heard in Mark. Remember that scribe that sidled up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. It's what she's doing. Remember that poor widow that Jesus picked out in the temple she put 20 pence in, two 10 peas. She gave of her all. This woman is a rich woman, probably. It's interesting that she is. Mark's model disciples are not rich or poor. It's their hearts. She took what she had of the very best. And she broke it over his head. Her Lord Jesus' head. 
Now, people in the room questioned what she did. They rebuked her strong, and they said, and it's not unreasonable, surely it would have been better to use, I mean, a year's wages, what's the average wage in the UK? 24, 6, 7, something, I think. Well, that's what it is. It's a lot of money. Why don't we give it to the poor? They scolded her, Jesus commended her. Look at verse 6. These are lovely verses in the Bible. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you. And there is not a vestige in Jesus' heart of lack of compassion for the poor. That's something we would do well to learn, his love for the poor. You will always have them with you, though, but you will not always have me. He's going back to his father. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever, whenever rather the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so it is this morning. Here we are. What a remarkable series of statements Jesus makes in response to the attitude and actions of this true disciple. Now, this is what the Lord Jesus, her Lord Jesus, thinks of what she did. And this is what your Lord Jesus thinks of you and what you do for him if, like this woman, you do it out of love for him and sacrificial service. Let me illustrate that in a different way. There is no chance that it crossed that woman's mind when she went to the cabinet, took out the nard, and sidled up to Jesus that what she did was going to be recorded in the Bible for her fame. That just happened. Her heart was entirely sincere and fixed on him. Notice what Jesus says in a minute. She has done a beautiful thing to me. It's just him. Now listen to some of these words. She has done a beautiful thing to me. What a wonderful affirmation from Jesus. He looks at what you do for him out of loving devotion, whatever it is, and says, you have done a beautiful thing to me. Many of you have uh, been teaching our children this morning. Some of you are looking a little tired. If you have done that, out of loving devotion to the Lord Jesus, you have done a beautiful thing to him. If you have visited somebody this week or texted them or emailed them or Facebooked them or whatever you do, to encourage them in their Christian life, 
you've done it out of sincere and loving devotion to the Lord Jesus, if you've shared his gospel, if you've told someone his name, you've done a beautiful thing to him. Now, there is a risk in this passage of sentiment, but let's run with that risk, for this is full of sentiment and love and relationship. Now, there is a strong probability in this room at this moment that what you do for the Lord Jesus is not that significant. One of the things that always unnerves me about conferences like yesterday is you guys get to hear to the you get to hear the best preachers in the world. And Kevin DeYoung is one of them. He is a wonderful gift to the church. It astonishes me that such a gifted man can remain so humble, and he is. Pray for these people. You'll get to hear him tonight. And it kind of discourages the rest of us as preachers. But you're going to feel that too, like me, aren't you? You know, what you do for the Lord Jesus, you're just not going to think is a big deal. What does Jesus say to her next? She has done what she could. Which of us in this room does that exempt? None of us. What the Lord Jesus expects of you is that you will do what you can. Do what you can. Do not do less than you can. But do not think the Lord Jesus wants you to do more than you can. She has done what she could. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And what she did and what you do if out of sincere sacrificial service for the Lord Jesus, is used by him for the advance of his kingdom. The end of verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. What that woman did that day was used by the Lord Jesus in the outworking of his salvation plan. I wonder if Jesus, and Mark does not tell us this, this is me reading between the lines, I wonder if the Lord Jesus took his memory of what that woman did for him into the Garden of Gethsemane when he looked into the cup of wrath that he would have to endure, moved by her devotion. And the Lord's final words of commendation, verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, uh, it is fair to say that what you and I do for the Lord will not make it into Holy Scripture. The book is shut. But I wonder if when you do something for the Lord Jesus, that the Son turns to the Father in heaven and says, have you seen that? Have you seen that? And it will be remembered. Now, Mark puts this in at the start of the Passion Narratives so that we do not lapse into forensic mode when we get our heads around the cross. 
we're going to sing songs over the next few weeks as we approach Easter, like undone by mercy and left speechless, standing wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder of the cross. And my prayer for you and me will be that we will be undone by mercy and left speechless and wide-eyed and never lose the wonder of the cross. Just before we move on to the next section, I want us to see that behind this woman's attitude and actions towards the Lord Jesus was that she understood that Jesus must go to the cross. Now, it's implicit, I think, not explicit in Mark's text, but I really think she understood. How do we know that she understood? She knew that what you did when someone was dead was anoint their head with oil in preparation for their burial. And she did it now because she knew the Lord Jesus was going to die for her. You will never, and I will never, give your all out of love for the Lord Jesus unless you grasp personally that he gave his all for you on his cross. Now, that's the preface, and I encourage you to return to that and read it again and again over these coming weeks. Verses 12 to 26, Jesus rescues us through his death. Now, the narrative in uh, verse 12 has moved on a couple of days. And uh, it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day of that feast is the Passover. Just look at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now, we need a bit of background uh, here. If you uh, know the background in detail, well, you can relax. If you don't, you've got to pay attention to this bit. Otherwise, you won't understand the enormity of what Jesus is doing. The seven-day feast of unleavened bread was the biggest feast, the most important annual event for the Jews, God's people. The Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated the events of the Exodus when God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, recorded in the Bible in the book of Exodus. And the Passover celebration on day one of the Feast of Unleavened Bread recalled the decisive event that brought about the rescue of God's people. And if you read the book of Exodus, you will read how God sent a series of plagues on Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let God's people go. And each time Pharaoh said no. And the final and decisive plague that changed Pharaoh's mind was the angel of death that passed through Egypt killing the firstborn. God instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb and to mark the doors to their homes with the lamb's blood so that the angel of death would pass over them. Hence, 
the Passover. And therefore, ever since, central to the celebration of the Passover at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the ritual sacrifice of an unblemished lamb that would have taken place during the day, during the Passover day, and then in the evening, in homes and family gatherings, people would have eaten the Passover lamb, the Passover meal. The Passover day looked back to the rescue of God's people, but looked forward also to the day when God would bring that final rescue through his Messiah. Now, just a comment on the unleavened bread. The Passover began the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is bread made without yeast, no raising agent. And what happened when God's people left Egypt, when God rescued them, they went out so fast that they forgot to bring any yeast with them. So the first thing they did, having left Egypt, was bake unleavened bread to eat. And that's why this feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, one more bit of background information, if you're still with me. God rescued his people from Egypt, and in doing so, he made uh, what the Bible refers to again and again, he made a covenant with them. And a covenant is like a, a binding agreement, an unbreakable promise from God to his people that he would be with them, that he would provide for them, that he will bring them home to a promised land. And the covenant has obligations also for them. They are to be faithful, loyal, and committed to God. If so, God would bless them. And the covenant, back there in Exodus, the sign of the covenant was the blood of the sacrifice. Let me give you one Old Testament reference. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 8. Moses' words, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And the point is that when God brought his people up out of Egypt, he did not simply rescue them from Egypt. He rescued them into a covenant with him that was unbreakable. Now, that's the background to the Passover. God rescued his people through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the blood a sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Now, verses 12 to 16, and I want us just to skip over these, describe the preparations for the Passover. What we read is that Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead, with clear instructions about what they are to do and to say, and everything happened just as Jesus described. And Mark's point is that the events of the Passion, the events of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, are not God making the best of stuff that was happening to his Son. It's that every dot over every I every cross over every T, every step the Lord Jesus took, every person involved in this drama was planned and purposed 
by God. And all that we read is in fulfillment of the loving promise of God that this is how he would redeem, rescue his people. Verse 17, we come to the evening and the Passover meal. Verses 17 to 21, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples would betray him. You can imagine the scene. They were reclining at table. Jesus had just gone into the temple the day before and turned over all the tables and cursed the temple. I guess the disciples would have been reeling from that. Come out of town to this home in Bethany where they were staying and they're having a meal. Perhaps things had fallen silent. Then Jesus pipes up and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Imagine their eyes would have darted between each other, looking down. Each of them would have said to Jesus, as Mark records, is it me? It's what I would have said. Is it me, Jesus? Am I going to do it? And then Jesus says something very shocking. He says, look, the destiny of the Son of Man is set but the person who betrays me, well, it would have been better if they had never, ever been born. And now comes the biggest shock. In the Passover meal, it was the responsibility of the host, Jesus, as the meal ran on, to get up and to pick up some bread from the table and to recall how God had rescued them out of Egypt and how God had provided for them ever since, how God provides all that we eat and drink, our nourishment, our spiritual food. And then the horse would have picked up a cup of wine and he would have talked about the fruit of the vine, the the promise to God's people through the years, and maybe he would have quoted from Exodus 24 how that blood is the the sign of the covenant. And uh, these disciples who were Jews would have known what was coming. They would have heard the words. They would have heard the Psalms that he was going to quote from again and again. And I just wonder if their minds just kind of switched out a bit. It's ritual. As they were eating, Jesus took bread like people had done for centuries and blessed it and broke it like they had done for centuries. And he gave it to them. And he said, take it. This is my body. No one had ever heard that. It's my body. And they'd have looked at each other and him. It's my body. That's what this bread reminds you of. And then he took a cup, and after he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said, this is the blood? No, he says, this is 
my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And with these words, Jesus inaugurates something new. Now, there is continuity with all that has happened in history, but there is now no longer the need to look back to the events of the Exodus. We do not gather around this table and look back to the events of the Exodus. We gather around this table to look back to the events of Calvary when Jesus, the Passover lamb and What a difference there is between a year-old, unblemished lamb sacrificed in a temple and a 33-year-old lamb of God, son of God, sacrificed on a cross. The one final fool atoning sacrifice for sin. And what does his death achieve when Jesus died, as we'll see in Mark, God's wrath, his righteous burning judgment and anger against our sin, passed over us and onto him forgiving our sins, reconciling us to God, bringing us into his kingdom, bringing us through death to life in the glory of his kingdom in a new creation. Two more things to notice. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. His blood, a sign of the eternal covenant between him and us. One of the dangers of the cross is that we fail to grasp all that it means. Sometimes we we downplay more than we should the wrath the suffering, the enormity of the weight that he bore. Something else we downplay is that the cross does not simply achieve for us forgiveness. It's not just a transaction that is done. The cross, or the blood of Christ, brings us into an unbreakable covenant with the king, what Paul writes about in Romans when he says, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give to us all things? Nothing, Paul writes, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's covenant language. What is the sign of the covenant? The shed blood of Jesus. 
I've got an illustration for this. It doesn't work in our modern world. Uh, in the olden days, when I was young, no, in the olden days, people used to cut their hands and shake hands as a covenant sign, blood passing from one. Now, in our modern world, people would go crazy at the suggestion. I would never do that. If you know me, you'd know I never do that. That's what they did. It's covenant, seal. I think of the bleeding hands of Jesus on the cross. That blood cleanses you from sin. And that blood is a sign of a covenant between Jesus and you that will never end. Never end. Who is it for? This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. But not all. Salvation is not universal. It is for those who believe. It is for those who understood that Jesus had to die. I was very struck this week by a very moving uh, comment on this in a book I was reading. In the end of the day, as you reflect on these verses in Mark chapter 14, you are either like the woman devoted to Jesus in an eternal covenant with him, forgiven and secure. Or you are like Judas, who reject him. And it would have been better had you never been born. That's strong, isn't it? Now, as we close, I want to leave us with that woman as our example, either so that you, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, will come like her to him in devotion and love and repentance for forgiveness, or if you already are, as many of us are, that you will not think on the cross as something that is neat or a brilliant way to save humanity. You will not think on it with any notion of familiarity. But like her, you will come to the feet of Jesus. And give him your all in response. Like we're going to sing when I survey the wondrous cross, as she did in anticipation. We do it with the clarity of hindsight. Where the whole realm of nature, yours or mine, that would be far too small to give him. Love so amazing, so divine. And, and this is lost, I think, in this hymn. 
It's not that Jesus, I think, wants us to go out and sell our cars, sell our bikes, sell our homes. And You know what he wants? He wants you. Where the whole realm of nature mine, could I give him the whole world? He'd rather have me trusting him than all that I could give him. Well, let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we come to the Lord's table, we would see it as both a realization of why we need to come to Christ. Not to the table, fundamentally, but to Jesus Christ. To whom the bread and wine point, it is to him we must come. Help us to see what it means if we don't. That it would have been better had we not been born to reject him. but it will help us to see what we have been saved from in accepting him. Forgiven, free, reconciled, life, and a covenant with Jesus that will never end. Help us to see. Help us to respond like she did For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.